Practical wisdom from the first leader of the Christian Church in Jerusalem. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we study James and how to put our faith into action. We are in the book of James, and we left yesterday in the book of James, looking at James chapter 2, talking about favoritism. And we talked about how God says you should not show favoritism. And they had this great example of a person coming into an assembly and they're wealthy and everybody tells them so they fawn over this wealthiness and how wealth rises to the top and how every type of society, they can't yet figure out a way to protect against the fact that wealth always rises to the top. Well, there is a way to protect against it. And the way to protect against it is basically to continue following the command of God from Genesis. If you'll remember the command of God in Genesis, it was two parts to the command. The first one is be fruitful and multiply. This is in the garden. The second one is subdue the earth. They get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. It becomes very difficult now to subdue the earth. But over time, man has figured out different ways to overcome a lot of the things that happen in our world. And if you look at society today, we have so we have so much technology. We now we do not have in the United States people who are starving. Now there are still people in the world that are starving, but they're not starving because of technology. They're starving because of poorly run governments that can't figure it out. All of the problems now in the world are because of people like poorly run governments where all the where all the wealth and power is concentrated in a few at the top who live very, very well and all the people at the bottom don't live very well. But the way out of this, if, if indeed wealth always rises to the top, then the way out of it is to continue to increase technology so that there can be an under... How do I say this? The way out of this, basically, is technology. And technology does two things that I can think of. One is that it overcomes some of the problems that inflict the poorest people of the world. Malaria, diseases, um, suffering, pain, water conditions, all these different things that still exist across the world. Technology exists so that we can solve those problems. And they're very easy to solve. Malaria is a completely solvable problem. And the problem isn't even the drug or the cost of the drugs. The problem are the governments across the world that are just corrupt. So that's, prob- so that's problem number one. Now, problem number two on how to solve this is to break through the barrier because if you have a corrupt organization or corrupt people at the top, the way around that is to get information to the people. And so you, you see in, in countries across the world where uh, information is blocked because they want to stay in power, and so they block information. Well, we now have a series of satellites that have been launched into the atmosphere and will continue to be launched into the atmosphere to be able to give internet access to anybody across the world. Um, access to information, and information is powerful. And information destroys uh, g- destroys 
uh, corrupt organizations and governments. And so you will, I think over the next 20 to 30 years, it'll move to different corruption, but you're at least going to see people wanting and forcing their governments to give them the things that they need so that they can survive. And there was an interesting article. Oh, I'm going way long. I'm sorry, but I got to, there was an interesting article that happened uh, in Wired Magazine a couple years ago. And it talked about, it talked about, I think it was New York that was having a problem with fire hydrants that they kept getting covered up with snow. And so they put together a task force. The task force came together and said, yeah, what we got to do is create a new department, which is the snow removal department. It's going to cost $10 million. And this guy said, well, wait a minute. Why don't we just have people in New York adopt fire hydrants like they do pet rocks? And whenever there's a snow, we send out a message to them and say, hey, listen, clean up your fire hydrant. And people go out, clean up the fire hydrant, and we can save all this money. Well, they decided to go do that. It actually worked. They saved millions of dollars because people were willing to, in the, will, in the middle of a snow, go down and clean up after their fire hydrant. And so they did it. The point of the article was that if you think about what government is at its basic root level, government is simply a collection of people that gather together to leverage the resources to make the world a better place. And what will a good government figures out how to leverage those resources very, very well. And the problem with most governments is that they try to do top-down management of government, which, I mean, there's lots of great ideas on how to improve government, but, the, the, but governments tend to be very statist. They don't like change. Uh, they refuse to change. They don't come up with good ideas. Any good idea that wants to change government is a threat to people who are in government, you know, the employees and all that sort of thing. So there's always a resistance to change. But it will become almost impossible for governments not to change in the future once information and technology come together to work together for the public good. And artificial intelligence then is the mechanism that will be able to help leverage those resources and figure out how to parse them out in a great way as long as as long as artificial intelligence remains unbiased, which is a big, big part of this. But probably not in my lifetime, but probably in my grandchildren's lifetime, you will see how kind of the dam will break loose because of, because of the internet and because of artificial intelligence and because of the ubiquity of technology, you're going to see the dam break loose and you're going to see the living conditions of everybody across the world and particularly in poor places around the world. They're just gonna increase dramatically. And uh, that'll be a good thing. All right, enough of my soapbox. I, I, believe, I believe that um, that this eventually will, that, that we will um, have, we, we will have the ability, now whether or not we follow this or not, but we will have the ability to not show favoritism to the point where we can um, use our technology not to benefit the richest of the world or the most powerful of the world or the most influential of the world, but to benefit everybody of the world. I think that technology is gonna, be the, is gonna solve that problem. 
because human condition is always going to want more, 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 more. We're always going to want it to be about us, and it should never be about us. And that's what Jesus preached and taught about. So anyway, we're going to finish that discussion. We're going to go to, we're going to go to, uh, let's go to James chapter 2, verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what Jesus talked about was grace and mercy, and these are the things that are going to uh, solve the world. We have to show mercy and grace to other people. And that is the, if because God has shown his mercy to us, we show our mercy to the world. We demonstrate mercy to the world. And um, that is what God's called us to do. And that's what God's called the church to do. All right, I'm going to put James 2 away. I wanted to get to the next section of James. This is the most fascinating section of all of James. This is why Luther was a little bit skeptical and wary of James. And so we're just going to get into it this morning. And it's actually James chapter 2, beginning of verse 14. And it goes like this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action. If not accompanied by action, is dead. Oh my goodness, this little section of James has been the most discussed portion of all of the New Testament. Because if you look at our Pauline theology, which is basically all the letters of Paul, um, and pretty much all the rest of the New Testament, except for this little section, it basically says that we are saved by grace, that Jesus came to earth and lived among us, taught, died, and then rose again. And the reason why he did that is to forgive us because we are faulty, broken, sinful people. And we can't live a life where we love other people. We just cannot do it. We will always fall short as much as we try. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We all cannot live a life pleasing to God. And so Jesus came and redeemed us of our sins. And that is, it is not only Pauline theology, it is Lutheran theology, it is Protestant theology. And I would say even uh, the historical Roman Catholic Church, they even believe that this is good theology. This is the theology of the New Testament. We are saved by God's grace, not of works. Saved by grace, not of works. If you go to, um, it's funny, I've taken a bunch of deacons through the deacon program, and then they go and have this interview with the district. And, you know, they say by grace, say by grace, not of works, say by grace, not of works. So they get into the interview, and it's like, how are we saved? We're saved by grace, not of works. Yes, good, gold star, everything is saved by grace, not of works. And then you get here to James, this little section of James. It says, well, if you have faith, but you don't have works, can your faith save you? I mean, this is just completely against 
anything that Luther taught. It's against anything that Paul taught. I mean, this is, this is almost a slap in the face to the whole idea of Protestant theology, that we're saved by grace and not of works. And reconciling this with the rest of the New Testament is very, very difficult for some people. But it should not be difficult for you at all. Because we are saved by grace through faith. There is no question that God does all the savings. We cannot do it by ourselves. But grace and faith go hand in hand. And the way I want to explain this is we have this image in our congregation of a tree that as you grow in your faith, as you grow as a Christian, your, your, your roots get stronger, your trunk gets bigger, and you bear fruit. And that is basically being the person that God has called you to be. And this is all humans. All humans have to grow in their faith, they have to grow in their tree, and they have to bear fruit. And what I always say is that, um, and here's a picture of it. Um, this is the roots and it's the, and it's the tree and it's the fruit that if you are not bearing fruit, if you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, if you're not being fully giving of yourself to other people, you are not being the person that God has called you to be. The bearing fruit is what we're called to do. We're called to bear fruit. Now, there are people in this world that do not bear fruit. It's all about them. They become sterile and they do not bear fruit. Now, their root system gets bigger and their trunks get bigger, but they do not bear fruit. Now, are they a tree? Yes. Do they live? Yes. Do they live a long, healthy life? Yes. Do they live the life that God's called them to? No. Because we are not complete. I mean, a tree is not complete unless it bears fruit. That's, that is what trees do is they bear fruit. And some of the joy of being a tree is to be able to give your fruit to other people. And, and so you're a tree and somebody comes and picks the fruit and the tree smiles because they're bearing fruit. Well, the same thing is true with a Christian. Bearing fruit is like what we're called to do as a Christian is to bear fruit. And the joy of being a follower of Jesus Christ in the kingdom is that we get to bear fruit. We get to love the world around us. It's like we're, we're fulfilling the deep need that God gave us as humans on this earth is to, is to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love and bear fruit. All right, so that's the image that we have of, of, of Christianity, of what I call the discipleship life cycle, where basically a seed is planted, it sprouts, it grows, it bears fruit. In the fruit is more seeds, and the, and the process all starts over again. I call that the discipleship life cycle. And, and you've probably seen that before if you've been associated with our congregation. Now, what does this have to do with James chapter 2? And it is this, that um, the root system, the root system is the faith. That God builds the faith, it's underneath the surface. You really can't see it because God's doing the work down there. But faith is growing and learning how God loves you and stepping out in faith and having that. The way you build your faith is to step out in faith and the faith grows and it spreads and it gets bigger and it's stronger. And then that faith then 
helps promote, helps facilitate the works. And the works are what you see above the surface. The tree gets bigger, it gets stronger, and the fruit comes off the tree. So you need both faith and works. You cannot have works unless there's a strong faith. And the faith supports the works. And so the two go hand in hand. Basically, under this model is that, of course, when James says faith without works is a dead faith because you can't have one without the other. You have to have faith in order to have the works. If you see somebody that is a tree that is bearing fruit, if you see somebody walking down this, you know, going on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and they see a, a person that's been beaten on the side of the road and they pick up that person and put them on their, on their horse and take them to the nearest inn and pay for their recovery, that just doesn't happen by itself. That happens because that person has a strong faith in God and understands that their calling in life is to love the world around them, all right? So that is how faith and works go together. You can't have one without the other. So now, with that being said, let's just take a look one more time at what it says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, deep roots, but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without food and daily clothes. If one of them says, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action, is dead faith. So the two go hand in hand. Faith and works work hand in hand so that we can be the hands and feet of God in the world around us. And I don't see any conflict between this portion of James and all of the Pauline, all the new, other part of the New Testament where it says we're saved by grace through faith. It doesn't say instead of faith. It says through faith. You need faith and you need God's grace. And because of that, we're saved. But we're saved for a reason. We're saved so that we can be the people that God's created us to be, to love the world around us, to bear fruit. And I don't see any conflict at all in this. I really, really don't. Well, and, and even we'll go on in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So basically, you will know a person's faith. You'll, you can judge a person's faith which is underneath the surface that nobody can really see, but you can kind of get to it because you see a strong trunk. You see a person loving the world around them. You see a person who is deeply connected to God through all sorts of methods. Um, a person who God isn't just somebody that sits on a shelf and pulls it out every once in a while and dusts it off and say, yeah, that's a pretty God. No. The stronger the faith is, then it is going to produce works. It's going to produce fruit. It's going to be the stronger a faith is, the more fruit and the larger the tree basically that's produced. And that is the whole purpose of James chapter 2. And so we as followers of Jesus, our role is to continue to 
to connect with the creator of the universe, to, to feed our root system, to feed our faith, to step out in faith when necessary. When scripture calls us to do something that's very hard for us, we step out in faith and we do it anyway. And then we see over time how what God's called us to be actually is the best way to live our life. You know, there's a lot of people who says that, that God's word is dead and it's useless and, it, and you shouldn't follow it. And maybe only a portion of scripture is really good, but the rest of it is not. And I say to them, no, all of scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and living the life that God's called us to live. And it takes faith to understand that. And yet when you do, when you really do follow God's word and follow it like he's called us to follow it and bear fruit, you will see that you are living the huge abundant life that God's called you to, to live. And it has nothing to do about the things that our society might think are great to live an abundant life, which is basically try to get to one of those people, right, that walks into the room and everybody fawns over. I mean, that's that's how our society, that's how the world, that's how Satan wants you to believe is you've arrived, right? And that's where you have happiness and joy is to be one of the top echelon of society. And you can be in the top echelon society and have joy. You can bear fruit. I mean, I'm not saying that if you're in the top, that if God has blessed you with means or power or whatever, that you don't use that to, to love the world around us. But it's, no, that's, that's a world thing. The, the kingdom is being a follower of Jesus and bearing fruit and then being complete to the way that he's called you to live. The perfect example of this, and I guess we can close with this, is um, Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Dickens' great novel. He was at the top, right? He had everything that the world had to offer. He had a business. He had wealth. He even had a family, although he didn't really spend any time with the family. Um, and yet, he just wasn't complete until, you know, the three visions came, Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future, and opened up his eyes to the fact that he was not living the life that God had created him to live. That there was more to life than just hoarding all the things that we have in this world and keeping them all to ourselves. <clears throat> and there was this great epiphany that happens because of that. And he starts to love other people and share with other people and use the provisions that God had given him for the world around him. And it changed and transformed not only him, but the world around him. And that truly is the message of Christmas, right? Is that Jesus came to show us that that truly is how we're supposed to live. Jesus emptied himself of everything and gave of himself of everything to the world around him. And that's the example of, of James, right? It's not about us. It's about the works that we give. Now, are we saved because of the works? No, we're saved because of God's grace and the faith that he builds in our life. But the works just follow along and the emptying of ourselves just follow along. And the faith and the works go together. So that's how I solve the problem of James chapter 2, verse 14. And I hope that's helpful for you. So... Um, let's close in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for building my faith and for helping guide my works and my deeds. In your son's name we pray, amen.